Father, we do acknowledge you as the great giver of all things, the one who meets our needs, the one who provides us with an abundance. And we gladly offer back to you just a portion of that as a reminder that we depend upon you. And so we give, give with great joy. We pray that you would use these offerings, Lord, to build your kingdom, to spread the gospel and the glory of Christ from shore to shore and from one end of the earth to the other. Glorify your Son, we pray, in his name. Amen. If you would, remain standing and turn in the scriptures. We will be in 2 Timothy 4 this morning, reading verses 1 through 5. Second Timothy 4, 1 through 5. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Let's pray. Father, we are not equal to the task. You have given us this word. Uh, we study it very little And even when we do, we're just not competent to grasp it all, unless you help us. Lord, make us equal to the task this morning. Speak to us from your word. Give us hearts that would warm to it. Give us wills that would submit to it. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And if you'll bear with me. Most of you know this is my allergy season. You don't want my pills to wear off in the midst of a sermon. So, one second. I kept wanting to start by saying, don't, those of you out there live streaming, don't adjust your TV sets. I'm not Seth. It's not just fuzzy. And if I sneeze, I'll turn away from the screen. So, ordinary, ordinary. You'll notice this week I have a title for your sermon, The Extraordinary Means. And this is not the common way we talk about the means of grace which God has given us. We always start with, we call it ordinary, the ordinary means of grace. But I wanted to give just a little extra emphasis on it. I do feel that if you're like me, we sometimes treat these things very casually. Uh, we take them for granted. And the word ordinary really kind of lends it to that. The word ordinary, simple definition, means customary, the usual, uh, unexceptional, or common like your average ordinary rock compared to a diamond. It's just ordinary. And if you take that further, then you start running into the realm of it being relatively inferior. So the ordinary is just something that we don't value very much. And so it's important for us to understand the way we use the word ordinary when we're talking about the means of grace. This is ordinary in the sense that God has given us certain things that uh, he ordinarily uses among us. This is the way he commonly works. Um, he, he gives us the word. He gives us the sacraments. He gives us prayer. He gives us many other things. But when a, when, a theolo, when a theologian begins to talk about the ordinary means, it generally is restricted to the word, sacraments, and prayer. We've already touched on these or taken part in all these this morning. 
Um, but our shorter catechism, our shorter catechism defines this as the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption. And these things are his, his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer. And to preach a sermon on the word, sacraments, and prayer would take at least three weeks, as you can imagine. This morning we're going to emphasize the word, but then we're going to take part in the sacraments. And as we have worked through our worship bulletin, we have prayed. We do this purposely. These things are crafted in this form for a reason. And it's because we believe that the means of grace are not ordinary. They are extraordinary in the sense that this is what God has ordained or appointed as spiritual food for us as that which undergirds us, builds us up, strengthens us. He has appointed these things to grow us up in the grace of God by faith. Now, we have to. these things have been debated for a long time. Even since the Reformation, these things have been debated. They didn't come down in absolute agreement on all this means, so it sometimes is helpful to, divine thing, to define things by what they are not. What we are not saying is, There is, let's just say in the Lord's table, there is no divine deposit of grace as if it's a substance or a thing which you get whether you take it properly or not or whether God is involved or not. There's no magic in these elements. They do not work on their own. But And God is not bound to work only through these things. In fact, God works directly upon the individuals in things like regeneration where he sends forth his spirit and causes this new creation. But for the most part, among his people, he has given us these things which we call ordinary to build us up. And these are his normal, ordinary means of working. And the emphasis is on the word, sacraments, and prayer. God's gift to his people to strengthen them, encourage them, to give them, as Seth, Zach has already said, strength for the journey. To give them strength for the journey. We're all on this pilgrim's pathway. We're all on a long journey from the time of our salvation to the time when we finally reach the celestial city. And this is what God has given us to get us there. This is given us to endure until the end. And the greatest even of these three is the word. It is through the word which we even know of the others or understand the others. So God has not only done great things, but he has given us a recording of all that we need for life and godliness. I think I mentioned in my prayer, Second Peter 1.3. So he has given us everything necessary for life and godliness for the true knowledge of him who called us. And where do we get this true knowledge? But through what he has committed to writing. And so we should take this as a treasure. And truly, when you look at what God does with such ordinary things, they are extraordinary. It is impressive. Now, as we come to our text, yeah, I think it's important to get a little bit of text context of Paul and where Paul is at in this. Paul being the author of this, as we saw last week in Philippians, Paul was also the author there. But now we're coming to the point in Paul's life where this, these are his last words, at least his last words to Timothy and uh, his last known recorded words for us. As far as we know, this was one of, on Paul's list of things to do before his, his untimely death. And so we are getting his last words. Paul is again in prison. Now, last week we looked at Philippians, and when he was in prison in Philippians, according to the end of Acts, he was actually in his own rented house. So he was under house arrest, of a sense, had a little bit of freedoms. He could entertain guests. Um, he could talk with people. People could come and go. And so while he was in prison, it was, it was much freer than he is in this occasion. 
uh, being in prison then, he also had an expectation of release. If you read through the Philippians, he says, I earnestly expect that I will come to see you soon and I will be, I will be set free and continue on in ministry. But that's not the case here. That is not the case here. Back then, we were in the years 62, 63. Now we fast forward a little bit. We're in the year 67. We know that he was put to death. You may not care about these things. I love the history of it. We know that he was put to death probably in the year 67 by the, at the hands of Nero, and Nero committed suicide in 68. So we're pretty good on the year. But this is several years later. He is in prison, but in this time, he's in a prison prison. This time, he is probably chained up night and day. So he's back in Rome. He says that at his first defense, his first trial, that he had been abandoned by everybody. So now he is alone and he is isolated. And you can see in his writings even an air of resignation. If you go right past our text this morning, starting in verse 6, Paul speaking again, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I've finished the course, I have kept the faith, and in the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. See, that sounds, that, that's not a man that sounds like he's about to go back on the road. He has resigned to his fate. And so he knows now that the last words that he speaks or communicates to people, they, they, they're important. You would think, I'm going to tell him if he thinks of nothing else. I want him to hear these words ringing in his head. And this is what he's writing to Timothy. He's saying, he's writing to this young man whom he's known for, oh, 15 or 20 years now. At times, this man has been a traveling companion, a spiritual son, a ministerial assistant, kind of a right-hand man. He had even sent Timothy or commissioned him to go back to the city of Ephesus as a pastor and to set things in order there and appoint elders and minister among them. He, he loves this young man. He has worked with this young man. He shares much in common with this young man. In fact, at the beginning of our text, he, he reminds Timothy of all his sufferings, and he says, join with me even in the suffering. You know, he calls him to basically come under the yoke with him. He loves this man, but the end is coming. And so, Timothy, he says, if you hear nothing else from me, if nothing else stays in your memory, I want you to hear this. And he says, I want you preach the word. That, to me, gives this text a certain weight that it does not have with just a casual reading. When you think of where Paul is and who he's writing to, preach the word, Timothy. Preach the word. Now, as we work through our text this morning, let me give you just three main points. Again, it makes it a little easier to remember. We have the imperative of the word. We have opposition to the word. And we have the minister of the word. So imperative, opposition, and minister. Now, the imperative of the word we see in verses 1 and 2. But I was reminded last week that sometimes I use words that not everybody knows. Um, And so I need to take the time to define some of them. So young people, let me ask you, do you know what an imperative is? Okay, yes, I'm speaking to you. Do you know what an imperative is? An imperative could just simply be a necessity. It is imperative that we have groceries in the house because dad's coming home from work and he's hungry. Okay, But it can also be and is most commonly used as a command. So when your parents say, clean up your room, take out the trash, that's an imperative. It's not meant to be negotiable, by the way. They really do want your room clean. They really do want the trash taken out. And they really do want you not to talk back about it. 
But that's not what the sermon is this morning. Just wanted to include them. Do the parents a favor. Right? So the imperative of the word. Paul begins with a weighty charge to Timothy. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. I mean, it's one thing to charge somebody, but he really stacks up a lot of things here and and puts a burden on it, a weighty charge to Timothy. He emphasizes the seriousness of what is to follow. And he's telling Timothy or reminding Timothy that he is to be governed in his thinking, not just by the present life, but also by the common judgment and the internal, the eternal kingdom of Christ. He's saying, Timothy, this stuff with, in which you are engaged and for which I've sent you back to Ephesus, this is serious. And in this seriousness, if you forget everything else I taught you about ministry, but you remember one thing, here's what I charge you with, preach the word. And the preach, the word, is an imperative. It's a command. It's not meant to be argued or debated. It's just meant to be done. In fact, Paul stacks up the imperatives. In this verse alone, we have five imperative verbs. Many of them could stand as a sentence of their own because, face it, if someone says, stop, that's actually a proper sentence. Well, he gives us five of these things. It carries a certain amount of weight. He gives us four more down in verse 5. So this is this entire passage is loaded with the necessity of preaching the word. And so he says, preach the word. The word for preach, declare, herald, you know, the town crier cries out. Uh, this is to be done publicly, not privately. It doesn't do you much good to stand in your room and shout the word. He wants you to be out and among the people. So declare it, herald it publicly, and always with a suggestion of formality, gravity, and authority. The word is to be preached with a certain solemnity, certain gravity. It has a weightiness to it. It should not be trifled with. You know, it, the, the message, the, the presentation ought to fit the subject matter and authority. The word preached is something that must be received, must be listened to, must be obeyed, must be surrendered to. And so Paul is saying, preach the word. It is not something to be opposed or challenged because of its authority. This is the word of God. You see up in chapter 3, verse 16, right before us, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, inspired by God, breathed out from the very mouth of God. So even though Peter tells us that men were moved by the Holy Spirit so that what they wrote was actually the very words of God, men were involved, yes, but the words on this page, at least in the original languages, right out of the mouth of God. This is not something we debate. When, when God says do, we do. Just like when our parents give us a command. It is an imperative to preach the word, and the word itself is an imperative to be understood and received and surrendered to. It carries the authority of God himself. He goes on and says, be ready in season and out of season. This can be taken as a whole, just means all the time. (laughs) Preach the word all the time. Always be ready. This is... When it's convenient and when it's not convenient. It's when there's an opportunity and when there's not an opportunity. Maybe he's telling Timothy, who had a reputation for being a little bit timid, maybe he's telling him, you need to man up and be a little more pushy. (laughs) But he's saying, preach the word, do it all the time, in season and out of season. Do not allow yourself to fall into a certain slothfulness. Do not be careless, but it is a call to a diligence and a consistency. And the subject matter of what you are to say is the word of God. 
We cannot get around that. Paul will not let Timothy get around that. And by the way, as a point of application, he is talking to a young man he put in charge to be a pastor of a church. But individuals that aren't pastors are not exempt because we are also told to always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us. And this is not not some flippant, casual story. It's focused on the word. What has God done? And he tells you to be ready to also speak the word of God. So be ready in season and out of season. Be, be ready at all times. So he gives us another few words, and we're going to kind of take these together. To be honest, as I look these words up here, there seems to be a lot of overlap in their meaning. You know, there are some specifics, but there's a lot of overlap. These are the words reprove, rebuke, and exhort. So since there's an overlap somewhat in their meaning or connotation, I'm just going to sum them up because it includes things like encouragement. Some people are just having a hard time. You encourage them with the word to keep keep on keeping on, keep on moving. So it's encouragement. It is appeal. There can be warmth there in the communication as we're friendly with one another. But it also goes to the other end of the spectrum to where it requires confrontation at times. It requires the necessity of calling some people to account. It's the, it's the idea that when you see somebody in a sin, you need to tell them, based on the word of God, stop it. Or if they're not doing something they should for their own good or for the good of God's people, we need to tell them, get at it. In, in other words, the preaching is not just a bunch of shallow platitudes and it's not light-weighted, but it is to be a penetrating, convicting, and intense presentation of what God has done and what God has said. And he's urging Timothy to be as intense as needed to be heard. And then he balances this out with great patience and instruction. So he calls for a vehemence and an intensity, a seriousness at all times. And yet he also tells them, do this with great patience. Continue doing this. Sometimes you have to say it over and over and over again because the old saying is, we need reminded more than we need taught. And he's telling Timothy, keep at it. Keep at it with great patience, careful instruction, but at all times and with an intensity and an urgency. Preach the word. This is God's means to accomplish things among us. As we get to verse 3, 3 and 4, actually, we leave the imperative of the word and come to the opposition to the word. And it's interesting, the opposition here to the word is actually one of the reasons he tells Timothy to preach with an urgency. Knowing that these times will come, preach the word right now. Be about it. Why? In verse 3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. There are minor differences here. I'm reading from the NAS, and you have generally the ESV. That's what we keep in our pews or in our chairs. But the minor differences really are that. They're minor. They're saying the same basic thing. He's telling us that a time will come when people will not endure sound doctrine, will not endure sound doctrine. This word for endure really means they won't put up with it. They won't put up with it. They will not listen to it. In fact, in today's verbiage, they will not tolerate it. It seems that the only virtue today is supposed to be toleration, except for the believer, except for the church. Gone is the day when the church and or its pastors and its people would be automatically respected or held in high regard because we are now in the age of being accused of intolerance 
or arrogance or exclusive. There will come a day, maybe, maybe the day has come, when they will no longer put up with sound doctrine. They will not endure it. And what will they do instead? It says that they will seek out, seek out teachers for themselves to satisfy their own, when it says tickle their ears, to satisfy their own desires. And the word they're used, not for ears, but for the desires, is one of forbidden desires. They have certain wants, and they're going to simply gather around themselves people who will tell them what they want to hear. They're going to tell, gather around them people who will tell them that they're okay, just as they are. They're going to gather people around that will tell them that everything's going to be all right as they are. They're going to gather people around them who are going to tell them, don't listen to these people. Don't listen to those that are preaching the word. Don't listen to these people who are a generation or two out of date. You know, these are, these are just ancient teaching. These are, these are ideas that were in vogue 30, 40 years ago. Don't listen. And not, and not, not just content to sin a little. It says that they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their desires. Accumulate. This word actually, I love it when it's more figurative. It says that they will heap up for themselves. They will gather them up in a pile. You know, they're, they're, they're not content to sin just a little or reject or throw away what God is saying, but they're going to find a bunch of teachers, and when they, they won't be content with just one. They want to gather around themselves a whole choir of voices that will drown out maybe the conviction that they're feeling from the word being preached, and they're going to tell them that they're okay. They're going to tell them all about, you know, their best life now or something of similar vein. A choir of voices to drown out the conviction. They will turn from the truth to myths, it says. Myths, fictions, lies. It doesn't matter. Anything but the preaching of the word. And I wonder for myself, why don't they just reject it? Why don't they just ignore us and go on about their businesses? Because they can't. Because they can't. They have been made just like the rest of us as spiritual beings. And in our very nature, we are religious. And we are going to worship something. And we can deny it all we want to. And we can gather around teachers who are going to agree with us and tell us that it's okay, it's okay. People aren't basically sinful. They don't need salvation. There is not a judgment to come. But that doesn't change the reality of the matter. doesn't matter how many voices. doesn't matter how many voices you gather. The truth is still the truth. You can ignore reality for a while. I love this. But you can't ignore the results of ignoring reality. Whether you like it or not, there's a judgment to come. And God has provided a way out, but you don't have the ears to hear. And you're gathering around all kinds of people who are going to tell you that it's okay, but that doesn't change the truth. It's appointed unto men to die once, and after that comes the judgment. That's the word. That's the word. They won't listen. Romans tells us that these people, even though they know God, even though God has made himself known in the creation around us, like we read in Psalm 19 this morning, says day and night they pour forth speech. They tell us that there is a God. They tell us something about God. They tell us that it's there. God has also made himself known in the individual. It says he has made it known in them. What would that be? You know, there's not a culture or a society in this world that doesn't have some kind of code of right or wrong. Now, they don't agree with us what's on their list of right and wrong. Somewhere you have three wives, somewhere you have none, somewhere it's wrong to steal your neighbor's pig, somewhere, hey, he's a great thief and he's the honored man, whatever. But there is still an idea of a right and wrong. That's your conscience. That's what God has placed as a witness inside of you to let you know that there is something 
outside of you. There is something greater. And Romans 1 also tells us they try to suppress this knowledge. What he's saying is this suppression of the knowledge will take the form when they will just not listen, but they'll gather around a multitude of voices so that they can feel good and part of the crowd trying to drown it out. But they will, will reap the consequences. You will reap the consequences if you persist in the hardness of your hearts. How low sin can take you. Wouldn't you rather, (laughs) wouldn't you rather just turn to Jesus? I mean, really, really. Some of us, we spend our lives fighting, trying to convince ourselves we're okay. You know, well, that's, that's, that's the sin in you. That's the sin in you. But you don't have to go there. You don't have to go there. Listen to the word of God. Listen to the voice of the Savior. The imperative of the word, the opposition to the word, and now the minister of the word. This is uh, you know, much shorter, but having talked about this group of people, he returns to Timothy again and says, but you, but you. That word but there, it's one of my favorite words in the Bible. You know, as for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive in Christ. I love the, the but. But you, you're not like them. Don't be like them. And be sober-minded. The idea of being sober-minded is in contrast to all these people who are acting in such a way that is nothing more than irrational. No matter how you want to look at it or what else you want to call it, it's irrational. And he says, but you, do, you don't be like that. You be sober in all things. You be clear-headed. You be calm, and you be unsurprised at the way they're acting. You be unsurprised at the times around you. Okay, We have been promised harshness. We've been promised suffering. We've been promised tribulations. Paul says that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He told in Acts, I can't remember the town, Lystra or Derby, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. He's telling you that the pilgrim's pathway is perilous. And it is. But you are to be sober-minded. You're not supposed to be surprised. Peter tells us not to be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come among you. Why is that? Because the word has told you it's coming. The word tells you it's coming. You should not be surprised. In fact, tough times is proof that the word is true because it has told you ahead of time. You are to be clear-headed, unsurprised at people's sin, unsurprised at their resistance and even their anger. You are to know that the tough times are coming, but also know, and I say this to young people, and I say this to parents and grandparents who are worried about the the time that their kids will have to live in, so also know that you've been made for that time. God is not somehow going to stop paying attention. He knows the times. He's in control of the times, and he's put you in these times. Be sober-minded. Enter into it with a clear head, trusting in the goodness of God who has told you ahead of time. Bad times will come. He begins to wrap this up with Timothy after saying, be sober in all things. He says, endure hardship, which means deprivation or afflictions. He says, do the work of an evangelist. You're not just a shepherd of the flock, but constantly out there seeking more of God's people. You're on a search and rescue mission. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Bring it to completion. Carry it through to the end. Persevere. Taken all together, the minister of the word is supposed to be clear-headed, and not just the minister of the word. This is for you too. Clear-headed, thoughtful, steady in character, zealous for the lost, and in it for the long haul. 
But the foundation and substance of his ministry, of our ministry, in the community, among our neighbors, is the word of God. We are to preach it night and day, first to last, without end. None of us are exempt from this. The word is central to the Christian life and sufficient for faith in life. Everything we need to know, what we are to believe and how we are to live. We, not just ministers of the word, we, Christians, we are on display as trophies of God's grace and called to be able to give a reason for the hope that we have, for the hope that is in us. The word, the word of God is his ordinary means to grow you up to this task. And it is to be the subject and the content of your communication, your conversation. We are, as a church, an ordinary means church. We're not overly programmed, which if you've been around here very long, I'm sure you're very aware of, even before COVID, we're not a highly programmed church. This is on purpose. We certainly do not aim to entertain. There are many that do. That's not the kind of church we are. We actually have a healthy skepticism of new methods that come along or the latest and greatest teacher or the new program that is set for gathering the numbers. What we are, as a matter of conviction, is committed to the ordinary means of grace, which God uses to do extraordinary things among his people. We tend, we want, we commit ourselves to relying on his wisdom in emphasizing these ordinary things to accomplish God's extraordinary purposes. You know, there's, the church gives the impression, not this church, the church, I think gives the impression to the world that we don't, we don't believe these things because we look to too many other things to accomplish the work of ministry or to accomplish the work of reaching other people. But if the content is not the word of God and if the methods are not of God, then are you doing the work of God? And, and are you relying on God himself? I don't think you are. We, we are committed here to relying on God's wisdom and emphasizing these ordinary things to accomplish his extraordinary purposes among us. Isn't he good? Isn't he? I'm amazed. Whenever I focus on something like this, I'm just amazed at the goodness of God, the foresight of God. He didn't just save us and said, I'll see you at the end of the race. He gives us what we need. He feeds us. He encourages us. He keeps us. He urges us on. He picks us up when we fall. He heals. He provides all these things. It's the essential goodness of God on display in these ordinary means as he feeds and cares for his people. Let's pray. Father in heaven, forgive us for our faith is weak. We We recognize that this faith is a gift from you, but because of the sin that remains in us, Lord, we're just weak. We have a hard time believing. Lord, this morning, would you use these things among us? Use the word preached. Use the prayers. Hear our prayers. And Lord, with the table, as we are about to get to, would you use these things to strengthen us, to encourage us? to remind us that we're not alone, but that you are with us. As Jesus has promised, he would never leave or forsake us. He is here today. He is in us by his spirit. He is before us at the table. Lord, feed us. Help us by faith to feed upon him. In his name we pray. Amen. If you would...